Our reading this week is from the book of Genesis, chapter 15. After these events, the Lord's word came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your protector. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you possibly give me, since I still have no children? The head of my household is Eliezer, a man from Damascus. He continued, Since you haven't given me any children, the head of my household will be my heir. The Lord's word came immediately to him. This man will not be your heir. Your heir will definitely be your very own biological child. Then he brought Abram outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars if you think you can count them. And he continued, This is how many children you will have. Abram trusted the Lord, and the Lord recognized Abram's high moral character. Here ends the reading. About five years ago, my family and I were invited by some friends of ours to attend a Friday evening service at one of the Jewish temples in Austin. It was a wonderful experience for us, and you know I'm still very grateful that we were invited. Many things were the same as they were in my church, of course. The members of the congregation sat in rows of chairs. They had worship books containing prayers, like this one that um, I have a picture of. I took, actually took this picture uh, while I was there. <laughs> um, these worship books contain prayers and ceremonies and hymns, just like ours do. The rabbi got up and gave a sermon at one point. A young adult spoke about a recent trip to the Holy Land. And there was time after the service for food and drink to get to know the community better. Of course, there were things that were different, too. The songs were often in Hebrew, and there was a fire burning in the sanctuary that was kept burning all year long and never extinguished. And the Torah scroll was kept in a place of honor behind the pulpit. This picture that I have is actually of uh, the place where the Torah scroll is kept. The cropping is a little weird, so you can't see it. It's right below um, this picture of the Ten Commandments inside this metal case. And the case was opened during the service and then closed um, when, when, not, when the service was not in, going on. But um, perhaps the biggest difference was the guard booth at the entrance to the property, where guards stopped all the cars that came in to check to see why they were there, to see if they were part of the congregation or if they knew somebody, because they had had problems in the past with vandalism, with terrorism, domestic terrorism, especially at that time, there was uh, a lot going on. There had been shootings and other uh, Jewish temples around the country. But what surprised me more than anything else was a moment in the service when the congregation sang a particular hymn. It went something like this. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, 
Adonai Echad. Which translates to here, Israel, the Lord is one God. Or maybe more directly, here, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This is a quote from Deuteronomy, the, the fifth book of the Pentateuch, which is uh, the set of the first five books of the Jewish and Christian scriptures. Uh, the, the Pentateuch is traditionally thought to have been written by Moses. What was amazing to me, and the reason why I can still sing this song, is that the Christian church in Berkeley that I had been uh, attending while I was there, that had been so important in my uh, move to Christianity and in teaching me about a form of, of Christianity that was universalist in theology and accepting and everything, sang this exact same hymn with this exact same music every week, which meant that I was able to sing along with the Jewish congregation, at least for that one line, <laughs> because this one line came in the middle of a bigger hymn, unfortunately, and I didn't know the rest of it. But I knew that one line, and it, in that moment, I felt a connection with that Jewish congregation that went deeper than just my friendship with some of its members. It was a reminder to me of just how closely Christianity and Judaism are related to one another. And that brings us to our reading today and to the the topic of our reading, Abram or Abraham. Who is Abram? Who is Abraham? Well, Genesis, the book this is from, is the story of the history of the Jewish people where they came from. It's a story of creation and a story of familial ties and tribal uh, uh, tribal ties and, and tribal membership. And it starts with the story of Adam and Eve, which, uh, again, we missed last week, but it starts with the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And they're expelled from the Garden of Eden, and they have two sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain slays Abel and is cursed. And so they have a third son, Seth. And from Seth, through a line of several descendants, eventually comes Noah. And in the time of Noah, God is angry with the people. He's angry that, that uh, he created the, the world. And so God uh, sends a flood and wipes out all of creation except for Noah and Noah's family. And God tells Noah to take two of every animal uh, and seven of the animals that are used also in uh, in uh, sacrifices so that Noah could still sacrifice animals and there would still be animals left to repopulate. God tells Noah to take all those animals onto the ark and, and onto this big boat. And uh, once the flood is over, Noah and his family repopulate the earth. And then many generations later... One of Noah's descendants is a man named Terah, and then Terah's son is Abram, one of Terah's sons. Uh, Terah has another son, uh, Nahor, and um, that is uh, important later in the story. But anyway, Terah's son is Abram. Now, to be completely honest, I don't believe that Genesis is a literal description of historical events. I, th I think that 
um, Genesis is a book of of mythology, a book of of mythology describing the the history and the cultural history of the Jewish people. And so, I don't uh, I I want to think about the, the story in that way. And I think there's some really important keys to that in here. And I don't uh, I don't know if Ab- if Abram or Abraham really existed. Um, everything before Abram and Abraham, I think, is definitely mythology. Uh, the story immediately before the story of Abraham in the Bible, after the flood, is the story of the Tower of, ba- of Babel, which describes how it how it comes that a, a group of people who are all descended from one person, from one family of Noah, who all spoke the same language, could suddenly become multiple nations in the world who all speak different languages. And the Tower of Babel is is very likely uh, to to uh, be related to an actual uh, tower that was built. And I'll talk about that in a, in a minute. But but I, we don't know if Abram or Abraham really existed, but I don't think it matters, to be honest. It doesn't matter for our faith whether Abram or Abraham really existed. What matters is the story that it, that they tells, which is about the history of a people. So one of the reasons why I think it's likely that Abram or Abraham is not a real person is Abram's name. So Abram in Hebrew means exalted father. And later, when Abram uh, gives birth to his son, Isaac, God gives him a new name, Abraham, which means father of the nations or father of a multitude of people. And Abram's wife is Sarai, and Sarai in Hebrew means princess. And then when Sarai gives birth, again, uh, God gives her a new name of Sarah, which means mother of a multitude or mother of the nations. And so Abraham and Sarah literally mean father and mother of the nations, right? So the names are very, very much um, mythological kind of in, in the way that they are. So I don't think that Abraham was a real person, Abraham was a real person, but I don't think that really matters for the story. However, I think that probably there's a grain of truth in here. This is probably a cultural memory of the people's um, who would later become the Jewish, uh, the Jewish peoples, and where they came from and how they came into being, and it's being told through one person. But really, we're talking about the the existence and migration of a of a peoples at large. And what's so important about Abram or Abraham for us, especially as Universalists, is this bit um, that comes before the the lines we have today. The it goes. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is telling this to Abram, and and God is not saying all your descendants shall be blessed. God says all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. So where did Abram come from? Well, Abram's father came from Ur of the Chaldeans, we're told. Now, Ur, we don't exactly know where it is. This is a map of the of the uh, of Mesopotamia, if you will, of that this area of the world. And there are two possibilities. Ur, there was a large city in the southeast of Mesopotamia called Ur that was very well documented in the archaeological archaeological evidence. That was part of the Akkadian Empire, which was a, a very large, um, a very large empire of the time, and the story that of 
uh, Genesis takes place in what's called the Greek Dark Age, which is this time after there were, there were a bunch of, of civilizations that had collapsed in this area of the world, and there were several hundred years where everything was kind of in collapse before they started to build up again. And so it's possible uh, that this story is, is remembering a migration of people out of the Akkadian Empire and into uh, the land of Canaan. Now, the other option is there was an area called Ur, uh, northeast of Canaan, near Haran, which is the next city that, that they go for. So uh, Abram's father uh, migrates from Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran when Abram is a, is a child, and Abram grows up in Haran. So we don't know for sure. But in any case, Abram grows up in Haran, which is in the nor- northeast of, of Canaan. And then God appears to, to Abram and tells him to leave his family and to leave behind his people and to, to go to the land that God will show him. Uh, and so uh, Abram leaves everything behind, takes his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot and all their possessions and household members, and, but leaves his family and his, you know, everyone, everything he's known growing up. Uh, when he is 75 years old, he leaves and goes to Canaan. And when he arrives in Canaan, he, he writes what's called Shechem, and he uh, and at Shechem, God appears to him and says, "I give this land to your descendants." And so Abram builds an altar there and worships. And then he travels on to Bethel, and builds an altar there and worships. And then a famine forces him to flee all the way into Egypt. And then he returns from Egypt later back to Bethel and worships. And then he settles in a place called Mamre in Hebron, which is not on this map, unfortunately. But anyway, and he builds another altar there. Then a war breaks out. Um, and his nephew Lot, who has settled someplace else at this point uh, in Sodom, his nephew Lot is captured uh, during the war, and so Abram takes all of his all of his family and men, and they go and they rescue Lot, uh, and then they return to Mamre and, he- and Hebron, and that's where we start this reading. Um, that's where the reading begins. So let's look at the actual text here. So after these events, after the events of the war, the Lord's word came to him in a vision and said, Don't be afraid. I am your protector. Your reward will be very great. And Abram said, But Lord God, what can you possibly give me since I still have no children? So God had previously promised Abram that God would make Abram, uh, would, would give him children, would give him land, would give him wealth and status, all these things. And Abram has many of these things now. In his trip to Egypt, he gained a lot of money. He gained a lot of prestige. He has all this land, but he has no children. And he's like, what can you give me? I don't have any children. And he says, the head of my household is Eliezer, a man from Damascus. And and this translation is not very good at, at this, but what the text actually says is, is that this is a slave in his household. This is somebody that he owns, that he has... Um, that he has given his inheritance to. And this might seem strange, but this was actually a, a standard occurrence in this area. And, and the archeological evidence tells us about it, that a, uh, a, a childless couple might adopt either a freeborn person or a slave to kind of care for them in their old age. And then after they died, that person would bury them and carry out all the necessary funeral customs. And in turn, they would inherit all their property. But, um, so this is what, what, uh, Abram is complaining about that, you know, he doesn't even have a, a child of his own. 
And he says, since, since you haven't given me any children, the head of my household will be my heir. And the Lord can't come back immediately and says, this man will not be your heir. Your heir will definitely be your very own biological child. And then he, then God takes Abram outside and says, look up at the sky and count the stars if, if you think you can count them. This is how many children you will have. Abram trusted the Lord, and the Lord recognized Abram's high moral character. Uh, again, this this translation is a little weird here. Uh, the kind of standard phrase is, the Lord reckoned it as righteousness. So, so God sees Abram's belief. In other words, Abram's trust in God, even though God has not actually given him the thing that God promised, Abram trusts in God, and so God sees that as um, as righteousness on Abram's uh, side. So, what does all this tell us? What what is what is the importance of this? You know, for the Jewish people, Abram again, who was later name was changed to Abraham, and Abraham is you hear what you hear more often, much more often than Abram, of course, represented an ancestral parent. And belonging to the descendants of Abraham was a way for the Jewish people to differentiate themselves from the other tribal groups that surrounded them. They were literally all from the same family. If these books were written by Moses, as tradition claims, then they would have been written by a group of people who were leaving Egypt after years of oppression, and they were writing down their oral traditions. I think it's much more likely that uh, rather than being written by Moses, they were actually written by uh, multiple authors over many years, again, writing down oral traditions that had been passed down for a long time. But either way, the point is that this idea that all this whole people were one tribe, one family that came from Abraham was a way to unite them and a way to set them apart from the other people around them in, in, uh, in Canaan. However, as Christians, and especially as universalists, it means something very different when we say that we are descendants of Abram, or descendants of Abraham. Now, some of us may very well be actual descendants of the Jewish tribes, but for many of us, that's not the case. Rather, our focus is on being part of Abram's spiritual family, part of Abraham's spiritual family. Earlier in the story, before this, God told Abram that his descendants would be in number like the sands of the seashore. And then in this verse, God says his, his, that Abram's descendants will be in number like the stars in the sky. And you can kind of see this as, a, as an expansion on the first one. And some people see this as that the sands of the, of, of the world were like his physical descendants and the stars of the sky were like his spiritual descendants. But the important bit, I think, is that Abram, when he set out, he was 75, and he was 100 years old before Sarai finally gave birth to his son Isaac. And so for 25 years, he had faith in God, that God would give him a son and an heir, even though he had no proof, even though there was no way for him to know for sure that it would happen. To quote Wilbur Williams, who who wrote a good um uh, description uh, of this uh, passage. God works through things, events, and circumstances, but faith must not be anchored in these. If it is, 
then when these do not materialize or turn out the way expected, faith weakens. If our hope is in a cause and the cause fails, our hope falters. Our trust must always be rooted and fixed in the person of God. What made Abram special was not his family or where he was or who, you know, what he did in his life, in his, his actions. What made Abram special was that he believed. He believed in God. He had faith. His parents were not monotheists. And in some way, this is what we hear. We hear God's call on Abram to leave his family of origin, to leave everything he's known and to go out into the wilderness and to serve God. And he believed, he had faith, and he did it. And this is where later on, uh, many, including Paul, will get the idea of uh, faith through grace instead of faith through works. That, I mean, uh, um, salvation through through uh, uh, through grace instead of salvation through works. And so, this is the important part. He believed. So even when things seem bad, and we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, let's not lose hope. Let us instead have faith in God. Let us remember that we are the descendants of the father of all who believe as are all the world. Amen.